Hello everyone, my name is Marko Milanovic. I'm an associate professor of international law at the University of Nottingham School of Law. And I'm very happy to be here today and to give you a, a brief talk on the issue of the extraterritorial application of human rights treaties. Now, this is one of the most uh, current topics of contemporary international law. Essentially, the, the, the main question is whether individuals have rights vis-a-vis -vis state action that occurs outside a state's territory. So for example, even though I normally live in the United Kingdom, now today I'm here in New York, and if by any chance an agent of a state other than, say, the United States did something bad to me, you know, would I have claims, say, under the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights or the European Convention on Human Rights vis-a-vis -vis that state acting extraterritorially? Now, you might think that the answer to this question should be simple, right? If uh, human rights are universal and they are imminent, inherent in the dignity of every individual human being, then why should it matter whether you're located within a state's territory or outside it? And indeed, if you look at the question philosophically, why should boundaries matter? But the legal answer, of course, is more complicated. Uh, and depends to a significant extent on the exact formulation of each specific treaty. Most human rights treaties, especially those that protect civil and political rights, contain these specific clauses, these jurisdiction clauses, that define their territorial scope of application. So, for example, Article 1 of the European Convention on Human Rights says that the state's parties shall secure the human rights of every person within their jurisdiction. Yeah. Similarly, um, Article 2, Paragraph 1 of the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights, the SCPR, says that states' parties shall respect and ensure the human rights of all individuals within their territory and subject to its jurisdiction. So you can see how the formulation is a bit different. In the ICCPR, we have an express reference to territory, which some states have interpreted as saying that essentially the ICCPR can never apply beyond a state sovereign soil. Yet other treaties, for example, the Convention Against Torture, have formulations that say, for instance, that states' parties have the duty to prevent torture or cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment in any territory under their jurisdiction. So you see how these clauses can be uh, very similar using this concept of state jurisdiction, but yet also uh, different. Other treaties have no clauses on their territorial scope of application. So for example, the Covenant on Social, Economic and Cultural Rights simply has nothing in it that says how it applies uh, with regard to a person's location. That means that you can take a very broad interpretative approach to, say, the ICSCR, or you can take a very restrictive one. Essentially, the text allows you to do both things. Now, coming back to these treaties that do have these jurisdiction clauses, um, the question of extraterritorial application is one of fairly recent provenance. I mean, when the treaties were drafted, very little attention was paid to these matters. The old cases you know, mainly didn't deal with these questions. So it was only really in the 1990s that big, 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 big cases start to get decided. 
by, for instance, the European Court of Human Rights or by the Human Rights Committee. Um, so if we look at the evolution of the case law on this question of jurisdiction, we can see sort of two basic approaches. One, that jurisdiction is defined spatially uh, as effective overall control of an area of a piece of territory by a state. And the other, the other approach is the jurisdiction is defined personally as authority or control or power over an individual that is exercised by a state agent. So it's these two basic conceptions, personal and spatial. Uh, note that when we speak of jurisdiction in this context, we are not talking about the jurisdiction of a court, which is normally how you would use that word. We're rather talking about the jurisdiction of a state, yeah? that you have to be within the jurisdiction of the state or subject to the jurisdiction of the state in order to have rights. So this idea is essentially that jurisdiction is some kind of threshold criterion. Think, for instance, of the 1949 Geneva Conventions. The 1949 Geneva Conventions, by and large, apply only if you cross a certain threshold, if you are in armed conflict, whether that's an international armed conflict under Common Article 2 or a non-international armed conflict under Common Article 3. So the vast majority of the provisions of the Geneva Conventions do not apply in peacetime. So there's a threshold for their application. So in that same way, there's a threshold for the application of obligations under human rights treaties, and that is state jurisdiction. As I said, again, when deciding these types of problems, human rights institutions have tend to focus on two different possible meanings of that concept. One is spatial control over areas, and the other is personal control over people. So let me say something about these two approaches. First, the spatial one. Perhaps the most important case regarding the spatial model of jurisdiction was um, decided by the European Court of Human Rights with regard to northern Cyprus. It was a case called Loisidu versus Turkey. And Miss Loisidu was this very nice old Cypriot woman who had some property in the northern part of the island that she could not go to because after Turkey invaded Cyprus, um, it established this puppet state of the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus that essentially prevented Greek, Greek Cypriots from coming. Now, Article 1 of Protocol 1 of the European Convention guarantees the right to property, and Miss Loisidu wanted to sue somebody. So whom could she sue? She couldn't sue Cyprus. Cyprus didn't do anything to her. She couldn't sue the TRNC because that's an unrecognized entity that is not a state in the eyes of international law. And even if it was, it is not a party to the European Convention. So obviously, the only state Ms. Loisidu could sue was Turkey. And it was in that case that the European Court essentially said, look, Turkey controls the northern part of the island through the presence of its own military and the actions of a subordinate local administration that it established there. And because that control is of such scope and intensity, there is no reason why Turkey should not guarantee the human rights of people in that territory, uh, just as if it was about people in its own 
sovereign territory. And that's a, you know, it seems like a very reasonable principle, that if states control the territory of another state, they should respect the human rights of the people who live there. And indeed, if you look at what other institutions have done uh, with this kind of approach, um, it enjoys overwhelming support in the case law. So the Human Rights Committee has, for example, similarly found that Israel should respect the rights of Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory because Israel exercises effective control over that territory. The International Court of Justice has found that the ICCPR applies extraterritorially in similar situations, for example, both with regard to the OPT um, in the Wall Advisory Opinion and in one contentious case, Congo versus Uganda, where essentially Uganda was found to have controlled uh, a big chunk of the territory of the Congo and by virtue of that control had to respect the human rights of people who live there. So it's a very nice approach. Again, all human rights institutions seem to like it. But the main problem with that approach is that it might be too restrictive. So on one hand, it is relatively easy to apply. You know, states either control a territory or they're not. There might be some difficult borderline cases. For example, if you have a case of an occupation which meets with a significant armed resistance, you know, locally, with a significant insurgency. Uh, but by and large, you know, this type of approach will be easy to apply. Now, the problem is that there are many, many, many different ways in which a state can violate your human rights, in principle, without having to control the territory. The most obvious such example is, for instance, airstrikes. So if a state just conducts bombing from the air without controlling the ground, it can kill people easily, I mean just as easily, as if it had troops on the ground. This can be a classical aerial bombardment campaign, it can be drones, yeah? or it can be something completely different. You can think of targeted killings, you know, in a classical James Bond type, you know, assassination scenario. One state sends an assassin on the territory of another state. You know, we all know it happened. Yeah? You can think of cases of transboundary environmental harm. So, for instance, there was a, a case pending before the International Court of Justice that ultimately got settled called Ecuador versus Colombia, where Ecuador was alleging that um, in pursuing its war on drugs, Colombia was spraying aerial herbicide in order to kill coca leaf plantations on its territory. But because, you know, winds being what they are, the poison crossed the state boundary and started poisoning Ecuadorian crops and people. And one argument raised in that case you know, was saying, okay, this violates the human rights of the individuals in Ecuador. So note, in order to do that, right, Colombia did not actually have to have any kind of control over Ecuadorian territory. The case that sort of brought this kind of spatial conception of jurisdiction to a breaking point is this famous Bankovic versus Belgium and others decision in the European Court of Human Rights. And that case essentially dealt with uh, an airstrike campaign conducted by NATO in 1999 in Serbia. 
And during that campaign, NATO inter alia bombed a TV station in the city center of Belgrade. And the families of the people who lived there, uh, who, who were uh, there during the bombing, said, look, all of these NATO states that are at the same time parties to the European Convention of Human Rights, like Belgium, yeah, like the UK, like the Netherlands, they're responsible for violating the right to life of our family members. Now, the court could have, for example, reached the merits of that case and look into this complex relationship of between um, human rights law and international humanitarian law and whether, for instance, that TV station was a valid military target under IHL because it was being used for some kind of military purpose. That would be sort of the merits type of analysis. But the court never reached the merits of that case. Rather, it dismissed it, saying it was inadmissible because the people killed in the airstrikes were not within the jurisdiction of these states um, as it sought to define that concept. Um, essentially, it said, you know, having, doing airstrikes over a territory does not actually give you control over the actual area. It just maybe gives you control over the airspace, but no more than that. When the applicants in that case said, but look, we don't want the intervening states to guarantee all of our human rights. We don't want them to guarantee the right to education of the people of Serbia or the right to free elections of the people of Serbia. All we want is the right to life, right? Don't kill us without some kind of justification. The European Court in this famous passage said that the text of the treaty does not support the applicant's contention that the rights within the convention can be divided and tailored in accordance with the circumstances of the act in question. Essentially, the court was saying either all of the convention applies or none of it applies. Now, that decision came to quite a lot of criticism among many human rights lawyers, academics, and so on. And you can see from a deeper analysis of that case that the court was really concerned not with you know, how you define the idea of jurisdiction in the abstract, but of all the consequences that an expansive approach to extraterritorial application of human rights treaties could have for the court itself, for states, and for other relevant actors. All you really need to know in order to understand that decision, you need to look at the date that it was decided. And it was decided in December 2001, right? a very few months after 9-11. And the court was obviously concerned with you know, what would it do if suddenly uh, people affected by military action of European states in Afghanistan all came suing before the European Court of Human Rights. How exactly would it decide these very difficult questions, whether soldiers on patrol in Helmand province, Afghanistan, for instance, you know, were really acting under some kind of mortal threat and then by mistake killed a civilian, or whether you know, that killing was unjustified. And from that standpoint, you know, from looking at how the court really weighed, not very transparently, but still, these competing policy considerations, you can understand why it took the restrictive approach that it did. However, you know, many, many, many years have gone by, and the court 
recently revisited that approach in this other very famous case called Alskany versus the United Kingdom. And that also brings us to that other conception of jurisdiction uh, in personal terms as authority and control over individuals. Um, that conception of jurisdiction also has a long pedigree. It was applied, for example, very famously by the Human Rights Committee in this case called Lopez Burgos versus Uruguay, uh, where Uruguayan agents, you know, the secret police agents, went onto the territory of Argentina, kidnapped a dissident there, and brought them back to Uruguay. And the Human Rights Committee said, by exercising control over that individual, the ICCPR necessarily followed the Uruguayan agents when they entered into Argentinian territory. Why? Because it would be unconscionable to so interpret Article 2 of the Covenant to allow a state party to perpetrate violations on the territory of another state that it could not perpetrate lawfully on its own territory. And that approach similarly was followed by the European Commission of Human Rights in a number of cases dealing with Cyprus, as well as by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Now, the problem with that approach, which also sounds very reasonable in principle, right? If I exercise control over an individual, why shouldn't the state on whose behalf I'm acting have obligations toward that individual? The problem with that approach is that it might be too expensive. There seems to be no way of limiting the scope of applicability of human rights treaties if you apply that type of approach. And as I explained by reference to Bankovic, you know, some courts might be reluctant to be too expansive or too generous um, in applying the treaty outside state borders. So in Bankovic, for instance, the European Court didn't even mention this personal conception of jurisdiction. It just, you know, was completely silent on the matter. But now came that Alskeni case, decided in 2011, 10 years after Mankovic. And that case was essentially dealing with the killing of six people um, by British troops in Basra. At the time, the, the UK was the occupying power in southern Iraq. Uh, and the European court said essentially that all of these six individuals were within British jurisdiction under that personal conception of jurisdiction as control over individuals. Uh, even though there were quite a bit of differences between how these two, how these six people got killed. Five of them were killed by British troops on patrol, while one person, um, this guy called Bahamusa, who was a receptionist, in a hotel in Basra and then got arrested because the British troops got a tip that he was working for the insurgents. He was killed by British troops while he was detained on the premises of a UK military base. Essentially, he was beaten to death. Um, and the House of Lords, the highest UK court at the time, draw a difference, you know, a distinction between these two categories of people. So it said Baha Musa was within British jurisdiction, but the other five were not. The Grand Chamber of the European Court, on the other hand, tried to use Alskany as a vehicle of repairing some of the you know, unfortunate damage 
it caused with, with Bankovic and some of the other conflicting decisions it adopted later on. So in Alskani, it completely reaffirmed that personal conception of jurisdiction. And on that basis, it said that killing people constitutes an exercise of authority and control over them, and therefore they're brought within British jurisdiction. Only, however, in the rather peculiar context of Iraq, where Britain was exercising public powers that were normally to be exercised by the Iraqi government, i.e. providing security in that area. So the court essentially tried to introduce some kind of limiting principle. Um, to what extent it will be successful in so doing remains an open question. Certainly, al is a vast improvement um, when compared to Bankovic. And indeed, the court actually partially overrules Bankovic. Now, it expressly says that within this personal idea of jurisdiction, individuals will have only those rights that are relevant to their situation. So that in the context, say, of the right to life, you know, of killing, you would only have the right to life or the right to physical integrity and not necessarily the right to education, the right to free expression or whatever. In that sense, it has opened the doors towards a more expansive approach to the extraterritorial application of the ECHR. The Human Rights Committee, on the other hand, has always been more generous than the European Court. Um, and its position is essentially that whenever states exercise power or control outside their territory, the ICCPR uh, follows them and binds them. Some states remain resistant um, to this, this uh, very broad approach of the Human Rights Committee, but I would say that there's a general trend as years have gone by towards more and more expansive extraterritorial application of human rights treaties. And now there are many, many interesting cases pending. So, for example, one very uh, current issue is whether electronic surveillance of people outside a state's territory. For example, if a state collects and reads your email uh, when you're outside that state's border, borders, um, constitutes authority and control within that personal conception of jurisdiction and whether, for example, you have the right to privacy under the ICPR or the European Convention. So you can see how this is a very, very politically controversial topic dealing with many, many interesting situations, um, especially those of armed conflict that also raise very difficult questions on the merits of such cases when, when courts decide them. So it is certainly not the case that we have the final word uh, on the matter, right? So the jurisprudence is still in a state of flux. My own personal view would be that the approach of all these various courts could be greatly simplified and could rest on more easily understood principled foundations uh, if we distinguish between the negative obligation to respect human rights to refrain, say, from killing you or from interfering with your free expression or uh, from torturing you, um, while the positive obligation to secure human rights or ensure human rights is much more onerous. It requires state, for example, to prevent purely private violence. 
And I would say that this distinction is very important. Because states always have the ability to refrain from violating your human rights, they should always also have that obligation. And negative obligations should accordingly be territorially unlimited. Whereas to comply with that positive obligation to secure and ensure human rights, they normally need control over the territory. How would, for example, state investigate purely private killings if they are not able to exercise you know, policing powers within that territory? So I would say that these positive obligations um, should only go um, to the extent that the state actually controls the territory. But that's my view. It's not the view of any court. So that's extraterritorial applicability of human rights treaties in a nutshell. I hope you enjoyed this talk and you will also have access to some additional materials that you can consult. Thank you very much.